Uh, it's a sad fact of life that at some point or another you will be the victim of a personal attack. It may be angry words, uh, it might be gossip about you behind your back, it may be something physical it, like vandalism or robbery. It doesn't matter how nice you are, it doesn't matter how much you want people to like you, at some time you will be attacked. Now, being a member of a church won't protect you either, can I just say. In fact, some of the worst sorts of attack I hear about are from people who are supposed to be brothers and sisters in Jesus. Unfortunately, many churches have people who are discontented, angry, hurt, bitter and malicious. Sometimes there are gossips and slanderers and backstabbers among us. Perhaps you've been on the receiving end of treatment like that in a church. Terrible situation when people personally attack you, where there's disagreement and conflict. Makes it even worse when it's in a church, doesn't it? But there's a type of attack that's at a completely different level to that. That's when the attack comes from someone who's close to you. When you're betrayed and wounded by someone you trust. Perhaps you've experienced it. Maybe it was a spouse someone who promised to love you until the day they died, but they betrayed you. And that wound is deeper than any wound you've ever known. Or maybe it was another family member, a son or a daughter who abused your trust, took advantage of of your love and generosity and cut your heart in two. For others it might have been a long-term friend or even a business partner. Uh, Our dentist is a a friend of many years and a number of years ago he was ripped off by his accountant. Cheated out of tens of thousands of dollars it took him years to recover. And he trusted this guy and been betrayed. You can cope with it when it's someone that you don't know very well. It's easy to, to brush off, I think, isn't it? It's easier to move on. It's not nice, but it doesn't cut that deep. But when it's someone close... It just shakes your whole world, I think, because their opinion of you matters far more than what other people think. And so their rejection hurts a lot more. Their betrayal hurts more. They're the ones you expect to support you. It's the worst sort of attack because it it undermines your whole world, I think. It, It impacts your trust of anybody. If you can't trust your friends and family, the people you love well, then you can't trust anyone. So what do you do in a situation like this? How do you respond? Well, let's learn from King David. He was in exactly the same situation. Now, the specifics of Psalm 55 are a little difficult to work out, but the general idea is pretty clear. David's been betrayed by a close friend. Did you pick that up in verse 12? Have a look at it. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were raising himself against me, I I could hide from him. But it's it's you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked with the throng at the house of God. He was a mate, someone David had trusted, that they'd even worshipped together. But not anymore, now he's attacking him in some way. We get a hint about what this guy might be about down in verse 20. 
My companion attacks his friends. He violates his covenant. His speech is smooth as butter, yet war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. So it seems like David's not the only one this guy is after. He says one thing, he promises it, he signs the contract, but then does something different. You can't trust him. He's a salesman, a con man, who who says whatever he thinks people want to hear, but doesn't do it. We don't know the exact details. Perhaps a rebellion fits the circumstances as well as any other. One of, the, one of his army officers or close friends, maybe even his son Absalom, uh, who led a rebellion to claim the kingship. But whatever the specifics, it's obvious how much it's affecting David. Just scan through the first five verses and look at the sorts of phrases he uses to describe how he's feeling. Uh, my thoughts trouble me. I'm distraught, suffering, anguish, the terrors of death, fear and trembling, horror. He's piling up phrase after phrase about how dreadful he feels. Uh, So bad, all he can think of is escape. Uh, Verse 6, he wishes he had wings like a dove and he could fly off into the desert where none of this could affect him. He just wants to get out of the city, out into the country, like when Ron and Claire head up to Harrington. They just want to get away. He's desperate for a tree change. Have you ever felt like that? Things are just so overwhelming you can't deal with them. You'd love to be able to just go somewhere to get some peace and quiet. Now, now sometimes a break's good. It can give you a chance to clear your head and, and to be able to make a good decision. As long as you're not trying to escape the problem, because it'll still be there when you come back. I remember Karen giving birth to one of our kids, probably all of the kids really, but at some point during the labour she said, I don't want to do this anymore, can we just go home? Yeah, it would have been nice, but it wouldn't have helped, would it? I mean, the baby was still coming, it didn't matter which room we were in, there's no escaping it. And it's like that here with David. When we want to escape our problems rather than deal with them, there's no real escaping. We can change location, but the problem doesn't change. It'll still be there when we get back. We might try going on a holiday from work, but the pile of emails will be twice as high when we get back. We can try softening the pain with alcohol or drugs, but the problems will still be there when we come down. In fact, they'll probably be worse. We can try and solve a problem marriage by withdrawing emotionally, living separate lives so you can't get hurt anymore. But that doesn't fix anything. It's not much of a life at all if you won't allow yourself to love and to be loved. David thinks about escape, but in the end it's only a daydream. He needs to deal with a problem. And so he brings it to God. Verse 9. Confuse the wicked, O Lord, confound their speech. Words have done the damage, and so the prayer is that the words will be made powerless. They'll be discredited. The speaker will be silenced. His audience will be taken away. His influence will be taken away. And then as David thinks about the personal attacks, how they're affecting not just him but the whole city, that's verses 9 to 11, 
and about how the betrayals come from trusted friends, verses 12 to 14. Down in verse 15, we we get to this verse that sort of sticks in our throat, I think, if we have to say it. It's pretty hard for us to accept. Verse 15, let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive to the grave, for evil finds lodging among them. It's a hard one, isn't it? It sounds fairly vindictive and hateful. And maybe you're wondering how how that verse fits in with Jesus' teaching to to love your enemies and to turn the other cheek. Or Jesus' example of asking God to forgive the sins of those who are crucifying him. Verse 23 gives us a similar feeling too, I suspect. But you, O God, will bring down the wicked into the pit of corruption. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men will not live out half their days. It just doesn't seem right to us to pray that God would kill our enemies. But I wonder if we would feel the same way about these verses if we were Christians in, say, North Korea or Burma. If a family member or church pastor had been arrested and beaten up for being a Christian or maybe even been killed if we were in Saudi Arabia or Pakistan or Libya. I reckon we'd probably find these verses quite comforting as they're God's words to us, comforting and reassuring, because David is not after personal revenge. He's asking God to bring justice. He's asking God to stand up for his people and protect and vindicate his people. There's a bit of a hint, I think, in this this strange idea in verse 15. I don't know whether you noticed it at all, but verse 15 says, let them go down alive to the grave. What does that mean? How do you go down alive to the grave? It seems like David's thinking about what happened uh, to Korah and his little little group of uh, rebels in the wilderness with Moses. Uh, the verse, the, the passage is Numbers chapter 16 and, and there was this group who, who were grumbling and they decided, you know, how, how come Moses gets to lead? I reckon I could do a good job leading. We'll lead as well. And uh, to cut a long story short, uh, the next day God tells Moses that he's going to destroy the whole nation, ungrateful so-and-sos. And, and Moses pleads that It should really only be the sin of of the one group. It's not everybody else. And so God agrees he's only going to destroy the rebels. And and read with me what happens. The the particular judgment both affirms Moses' leadership as well as punishes the rebels. Uh, Number 16, verse 28. Then Moses said, This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things, that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and experience only what usually happens to men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the grave, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. As soon as he finished saying this, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all Korah's men and all their possessions. 
They went down alive into the grave with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. Uh, it's a pretty unusual way of dying, I would have thought, uh, but, but that was the point here in Numbers. It was to show God's judgement. This is God doing that to these people who are against Moses and God's people. And it both uh, punishes them and supports uh, God's leadership. And so I think that's the, the sort of thing that David is praying here uh, for those people who are rebelling against him. Uh, these people who are traitors against God's people and God's leader. Uh, deal with them according to the way you've shown justice before. Keep the unity of your people. Keep the support for the leader, just like you did back there with Moses in the wilderness. So I think that's what's behind David's request, that God would take his enemies. And so I think that puts a bit of a different spin on it for us. Uh, it's a different situation to our personal betrayals. So, so I would say it's not right for us to be praying that God will be destroying those people who uh, are against us, our enemies. I think it's right that we should be praying that God would deliver us, that he would silence our betrayers, that he would bring them to justice. I think they're all good things to, to be praying for, that God would take away their power. And when we do pray those sorts of things against uh, our enemies, we can be confident that God will be just. Uh, we might make a decision on the spur of a moment and, uh, and go too far or be tempted not to go far enough, but God will always do things justly. Uh, he may bring justice in this life against those who've done wrong. It may just be uh, on Judgment Day that he brings justice, but he will do it. Uh, we can be confident in it. From verse 16, we see something of David's confidence that God will act. Have a look there with me, verse 16. But I call to God and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning and noon, I cry out in distress and he hears my voice. He ransoms me, unharmed from the battle waged against me, even though many oppose me. God, who is enthroned forever, will hear them and afflict them. On the one hand, enemies are certain to attack you. Friends can't be trusted either, really. But David says God can. God doesn't change. He can be trusted to deliver. And there's the contrast in the psalm. It's this comparison between God and people. One who you can trust and the other who you can't trust. It may seem as if earthly powers are uh, powerful and huge and earthly powers are in charge. But the reality is God is enthroned forever. He's the king. He's the one who rules. No one deposes him. And so we come to David's conclusion there in verse 22, the lesson he's got for all of us who are reading. Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Uh, we see the cares in the next verse. But you, O Lord, will bring down the wicked into the pit of corruption. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men will not live out half their days. And he finishes with these words, but as for me, I will trust in you. He's cast his burdens onto God and he's going to leave the burdens there. He's going to leave the wicked and deceitful men with God. 
He's not sure what the future holds, but he's stepping into tomorrow with the confidence that God will sustain him. God is on the throne. He's handed the burden of the wicked men over to him. And we can do the same. Whether it's cares about the betrayal of a close friend, or maybe cares about work, or cares about childlessness or illness, we can cast them over to him. If it's cares about children, we can cast them over to him. Cares about our kids' salvation, or their safety, or their future, or their choices, or their character. Let's hand them over to God. If you're worried about guidance, where God wants you and what he wants you to do, you can cast your cares over to him. But what does that look like? How is it, how does someone who has left their cares with God, how do they behave differently from somebody who hasn't? Someone who's looking at, holding on to their cares. What does it look like to cast your cares over to him? Well, at the very least, like David in this psalm, it'll, it'll mean praying, won't it? Praying more, praying first rather than as a last resort, praying longer, That's the example David gives us. Pray about it is the one way we hand hand our cares over. That was David. But we have even more reason to trust God, don't we? Because we know Jesus. Jesus suffered rejection and betrayal far worse than we have ever done. He understands And so we can come to him confident that he'll hear us. He knows what it is to be abandoned. He weeps with us. In Hebrews 4.15 we read, For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathise with our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. David brought his cares to God and he didn't know Jesus, but but we know Jesus. He's been rejected and so we can come confident that he understands our rejection and will hear us and give us help. But here's another way we can cast our cares onto God. We show that we're trusting him, that we've handed them over to us, uh, we've handed them over to him in the way we live. It's very easy, it's very tempting to respond with vengeance and injustice and to fight fire with fire, isn't it, when we've been betrayed. It's very easy to want to get even. But we cast our cares onto God uh, by trusting him and living godly lives. That's the advice that Peter gives us in 1 Peter chapter 4. He's talking to a group of people who are suffering persecution. And at the end of chapter 4, he sums up what their lives should look like in the face of persecution. So then, those who suffer according to God's will. Now just stop there and notice that little phrase. Those who suffer according to God's will. Now that's a little different to what you might 
hear in some places that God's will is that you should never suffer, that things will never go bad in your life and that it's your fault if bad things happen. God is saying that there are times, or this is saying that there are times when suffering is God's testing of you, to discipline you, to build your faith, to increase your hope in heaven to give you sympathy for other people so you can comfort them with the comfort you've received. There's all sorts of reasons why God might allow us to suffer. But anyway, that's maybe a sermon for another day. Uh, Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and, and what? Continue to do good. Commit yourself, cast your cares onto him and then you show that commitment not by seeking revenge, not by worrying, but by continuing to do good. As if evil hasn't been done to you. As if nothing was wrong. Continue to do good. That's how you show you've cast your cares onto God. In the face of huge burdens, you behave in a way that people can't understand. How can you keep going about as normal when life is so tough? Well, because I'm not carrying any burdens. I've cast them onto God. Peter continues down into chapter 5, describing what it looks like to continue to do good. He begins with the elders. Keep looking after the sheep. Verse 5, young men, keep submitting to those over you. Clothe yourselves in humility. And then he gets to verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's how you show you've cast your burdens onto him. You humble yourself under his hand and say, thank you, God, for that. I need this. I need this to make me hope for heaven. I need this to humble me. I need this so I can comfort others. I need this to train me like Je- to make me like Jesus. We cast our cares onto him. We recognise that we are weak and he is strong, that he is good, that he controls tomorrow, he is on the throne and we're not. Others might abandon us, but God never will. And we trust him and we show that trust as we live obedient and godly lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us uh, in the face of difficulties, in the face of betrayals, to cast our burdens onto you. You are on the throne. You will lift us up in due time. You care for us. Amen.